0: Alright, so welcome to week eight of our teaching series called the Upside Down Kingdom. If you joined us last week, you know that we interrupted our series last week to really kind of talk about uh, how to look at what's going on in the world uh, from a, a biblical perspective. Um, but at the end of last week's teaching, I, I mentioned and really tried to drive at exactly how important it is for us to be unified as a church and, uh, and I mentioned that, that the next teaching uh, that I offered on Sunday morning would be really aiming specifically at that topic. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> which is what we've been talking about for uh, today, will make eight weeks now. The Sermon on the Mount is, um, I think one of the biggest dangers in reading Jesus' Sermon is reading it through an individualistic lens. Because the Sermon on the Mount is really not, Something that we should be reading as though it's for an individual, like it's a like it's a guide for for uh, telling me how to live my life individually. Because what Jesus is giving us all through his sermon is really a description of this this new kind of community. That's why Jesus refers to something called the kingdom of God and not just the person of God. And what's really interesting is that even though the theme of deep Christian community is all through every part of Jesus' sermon, there's no one particular set of verses that specifically explains exactly how a relationship with Jesus is meant to transform your relationships with other believers. So what we're going to do this morning in order to understand this new community that the gospel creates is look at two different passages from Jesus' sermon. So I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 24, and then hop over to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. So let let me read those on the front end here. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, 'Fool,' will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, You moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them with their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. This is God's word. So the question I'd like to uh, to answer this morning is, what does Jesus teach us about this new community formed by his gospel? And based on uh, the passages that we're looking at this morning, there's really three, uh, three things I want to pull from Jesus' words. First off, what this community is meant to be. Secondly, what this community is meant to do. And then lastly, how this, is com- this community is meant to to do it. So, first and foremost, what is this community meant to be? Uh, and this is going to bring us to our first idea this morning, and it's probably an idea that you've heard before. It's that the new community is a family. So, you see this w- when you look at how Jesus over and over again refers to other Christians in the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over again, of all the ways that Jesus could refer to other Christians, he refers to them as your brother. And I just want to go back and and, and look at the repetition that Jesus uses here. In verses 21 through 24, Jesus talks about being angry with your brother, uh, calling your brother a fool, and how if your brother has something against you, to be reconciled to your brother. And in chapter 7, Jesus talks about looking at the speck in your brother's eye, uh, speaking into your brother's life, and helping take the speck from your brother's eye. Now, for Jesus to use that kind of repetition... Uh, that often obviously means that he was he was trying deliberately to make a point and the point that Jesus is trying to make here is that when you give your life to Jesus and you are what the Bible refers to as born again you are not simply born into a relationship with God you're born into a family with a whole lot of people that you are automatically related to. So when you enter into a relationship with God through Jesus, uh, really the whole point of Christianity is that God is not your boss from then on through Jesus. Uh, as though you've got to work to earn your keep and you're always one mistake away from getting fired. Through Jesus, we get God as a father, which is obviously amazing news. Uh, so you have an unconditional relationship with God is what that means through Jesus. Uh, but what Jesus is teaching here is that when you get God as a father... You also get other Christians as siblings. It's a package deal, and you really can't have one without also having the other. Now, when you talk about how the church uh, and the community of Jesus followers is meant to be a family, it's easy to romanticize that, which I, I think can, can be really unrealistic. Uh, so, so I kind of wanted to go a different way, and, and I just wanted to, uh, to tell you a story about an interaction that I once had with my own sibling. And before I do this, I should mention that I asked his permission to use this story. So for those of you that, that don't know, I have a twin brother. Uh, you would never guess that we're twins. We look absolutely nothing alike. And the last physical fight that we had took place a little over 10 years ago. We were in our uh, early 20s, and it was at my dad's house. And this fight um, was uh, it, it was very memorable to me, uh, as it was to my brother, as we talked about it. Uh, leading up to uh, uh, this teaching uh, is a real burner and it actually required my dad to come and break us up uh, because we when we ended the fight we literally wound up kind of back to back uh, against you know either side of a hallway literally at each other's throats and uh, we'd actually put a hole in my dad's wall which if memory serves, is there to this day, which has kind of served as a monument to that last fight. So anyway, things were really heated, and I was in the fire department at the time, and so the next day I went in uh, to, the, to the firehouse for my, my shift. And I mentioned, just kind of in passing, I mentioned uh, the fight to my lieutenant, and uh, I remember how strange his response was to me. Because when I talked to him about this fight, his response to me in hearing about it, seemed to indicate that he was under the impression that, that my brother and I now were going to part ways as though that fight marked the end of our relationship. But hand to God, that thought never even occurred to me, never even began to enter into my mind. Because, you know, as far as I was concerned, my brother was my brother before that fight. He was my brother during that fight. I mean, even in the middle of that fight, it wasn't like I was thinking, you know what, I'm probably never going to talk to this guy again. Like, he was my brother during that fight, he was my brother after that fight, and nothing in this life can ever really change that. It's just not a switch that you can flip. It's a bond that we share as siblings that can't ever be turned off. And the reason I tell that story is because all of that is what should come to our mind when we think about Jesus telling us here that other Christians are our brothers. For, for Jesus to use this term, and, and I don't know if this is going to hit you like it hit me, but, but thinking about you know right now how divided our culture is, and, you know, I touched on this last week, how everybody's got an opinion and everything seems so polarized. And I don't know if things are really more divided than they used to be or if it's just easier to see now than it ever has been. But for Jesus to use this term, to describe other Christians to you, not as your friends, not as, you know, your fellow believers, but, but as your brother. What that means, is it, what, what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is that when you give your life to him, From that moment forward, you have a spiritual bond with other believers, with other Christians that is exactly as binding as the biological bond between siblings. And that doesn't mean, obviously, that the relationship is going to be easy. Uh, That doesn't mean that you're never going to have fights. That doesn't mean that, that on occasion you might put a hole in a couple of walls. What it does mean is that in and through all of that, the relationship remains. It means that we're not going to cut and run on each other. It means that we're not going to give up on each other. And I think if the church could get this right, could just understand this aspect of what Jesus desires for us as his children when he talks about this kind of unity and this kind of community that he died to create, I think if we could get this right, it would communicate something powerful to the world. It would be holy to the world because the rest of the world doesn 't operate like this. I touched on this last week, but we 're living in this culture that teaches us to believe that if you and I disagree about anything, if we hold any kind of contrary opinions, then we need to you know sever our relationship and be enemies and just kind of bark back and forth at each other on social media and, and I think that 's bled into the church far too much, but the reason that it has. It's because as believers, we haven't understood that in Jesus, other Christians are not just other Christians. They're our brothers and they're our sisters, meaning we are a family. Now, we can turn our Christian brothers and sisters into friends, and we're going to talk about how to do that throughout the rest of this teaching, but the bottom line is they start out as our brothers and sisters, which means that, that they're ours and we are theirs whether we like it or not. Because this new community that Jesus died to create is a family. Now, if if that's what this community is meant to be, then the next question I wanted to to answer today is, what is this community meant to do? And the answer to that is going to be our our next idea this morning. Number two, it's that the new community is designed for accountability. Now, in in Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 23 and 24, Jesus says this. He says, so if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now here, what Jesus is explaining to us is exactly how deeply we have to be connected to other Christians. And what he's saying is that we have to be connected to the point of personal accountability. Let me just walk through this scenario Jesus paints for us here. So Jesus says that if you are offering your gift at the altar, uh, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, you need to leave, you need to drop everything, and go be reconciled to them. Um, Now, I've never really thought too much about this my whole life, but what Jesus is saying here is actually very strange. Because Jesus does not say, uh, if you have something against your brother... He also doesn't say if you've actually done something against your brother. In the scenario that Jesus is raising here, uh, this person, whoever this person is, has an issue against you, but evidently you don't have one with them. So the the question is, if this person has an issue with you, shouldn't they be coming to you? And the answer is yes, that's exactly what they should be doing. There's other verses in scripture that explicitly state that if somebody has an issue with you, they should go to you and kind of hit that head on. So if this person has an issue with you and hasn't come to you, uh, you know, that's either because this person is a coward and they're too afraid to confront you, uh, or on the other hand, it could be that they're just being overly sensitive and making things up. But the point is, this person in this scenario is actually at fault. Now, kind of building off of what I just said in that that first idea that this new community is a family, let let me just highlight something. If this was a voluntary relationship between you two, between you and this person that Jesus talks about here in these verses. If this was a voluntary relationship, there would be no reason whatsoever for you to drop what you're doing, leave your gift at, at the altar, and then go to them. Because your mindset would be, hey, if, if this person has an issue with me, then they, they can either come to me or they can get over it. It's not really my problem. But, but what, what we need to see here is that Jesus holds you and I accountable and responsible in the family of God. What Jesus is teaching here is that regardless of whether that person is worthy of it or not, regardless of whether or not this person's issue with you is valid or not, regardless of whether or not you've even done something wrong, Jesus says you're responsible to go to him because you're accountable. You're accountable for that person's spiritual growth, just like they're accountable for yours. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, But encourage each other daily... While it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Now, this word hardened to me is really interesting. Uh, The Bible teaches that that sin is basically, sin is like frigid air and your heart's like a bucket of water. And what that means is that you need to constantly break the ice forming on top of the water uh, because it's going to form there naturally. And so if you're you're not constantly breaking up the ice that's forming, then it's not going to be very long until the whole thing is a solid block of ice. The Bible says your heart is exactly like that, that that ice forms on it naturally. It's automatically becoming hardened uh, either through success or uh, or through suffering. Right? For, so, so for instance, if things are going really well for you right now, then your heart on autopilot is becoming hardened as a result of the success that you're experiencing. That You're going to begin to forget your, uh, your need for God. You're going to begin uh, to become self-reliant. Uh, to become prideful, to become arrogant as a result of your success. On the other hand, if things are going very not well for you right now, then the default function of your heart is to begin to become hardened through your suffering, that you'll begin to forget the love of God, and you'll begin to grow in bitterness and in despondency and in cynicism and becoming you know, really callous. The point is uh, that, that the default setting of your heart and my heart, if left unattended to, is to become hardened. Hardened. And according to Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13, the only way that you and I are going to avoid freezing is by having somebody in our life who's close enough to us and can see us and knows us to the point that they can help us handle our own hearts. Now for that process to really happen, that requires at least two things. That requires a great deal of vulnerability. On the one hand, it requires a great deal of constancy. On the other hand. Meaning that that what this means is you and I have to constantly be opening up to one another in a very deep way, and we need to be doing this early and often, over and over again, so that those people can see into our lives and all the places that our hearts are prone to becoming hardened, so that they can keep us accountable. Now that's a very difficult thing to do, but it's a whole lot easier than trying to move through this life with a heart that's frozen solid. So in in light of of Jesus' words here, I think there's really two questions that are worth asking. And I'll make this personal for you. The first is this, who are you accountable to? Meaning who has the, the, the ability to speak into your life in every area of your life and to kind of blow the whistle on you and call you out in all the areas that you know, you might not be seeing things for what they are uh, your, you know, your character flaws, your blind spots, the issues of your life that that are yet to be surrendered to Jesus. Who who are you accountable to? Is the first question, this requires us to ask of ourselves. But the other side of that is, secondly, who are you accountable for? Meaning, what what Christians uh, or or what Christian do you consider yourself so deeply connected to that their health and their growth and their development as a follower of Jesus is something that you would consider to be your responsibility. The way that Jesus says in no uncertain terms, it is to a degree. What people are there in your life that you would be willing to drop your gift at the altar for to run to, just to make sure that they're okay? And as I was even considering these questions and what Jesus is really calling us to here, one thing that I realized is, is that this completely flies in the face of American individualism. This completely flies in the face of, of the way that we're taught to go through life, kind of keeping everybody at an arm's length, and you know, my personal business is my personal business. But 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 what we need to see here is that if, if our answer to those questions, you know, if, if somebody were to say, "Well, I'm not accountable to anybody, I'm not really accountable for anybody," then what Jesus would say is that having these kinds of people in our life to keep us accountable is not an option in the Christian life. It's a hallmark of the Christian life, because the new community that Jesus died to create is designed for accountability. So if that's what this community is meant to be and what this community is meant to do, the third thing that I said I wanted to speak to today is really how this community is meant to do what Jesus says it's it's meant to do and and really what that's supposed to look like. And to answer that question, we're going to turn to chapter 7, but this is going to be our third and it's going to be our final idea today. It's that the new community... Is marked by a balance. <clears throat> and you see this in, in uh, Matthew chapter seven. So in Matthew seven, verses one and two, Jesus says, Do not judge, do not judge, so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now that's straightforward enough. I don't think that's terribly hard to figure out what Jesus is going for there. But then when you go down to verse 6, Jesus follows that by saying, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs. Or they will trample them with their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. So just zooming out here in verse 1, Jesus says, don't be judgmental. And then in verse 6, he's calling people pigs and dogs and he's telling you not to give them what is Now, on the surface, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, I think all of us would say that that looks like an apparent contradiction. But the reason that that looks like a contradiction to us is because we don't understand the balance that Jesus is talking about here. Frankly, none of us really understand this balance fully because nobody really walks in this balance and embodies this balance other than Jesus. See, over and over, the Bible holds up this balance between truth and love. Right On the one hand, there's plenty of stories in the Bible and verses in the Bible that would highlight for us that love without truth doesn't work. <clears throat> love without truth is marked by a mindset that says, I'm not going to challenge them. I'm not going to confront them. I'm not going to speak into their life. I'm just going to kind of let them figure things out on their own. It's not really my place to step on their toes. Right? Uh, If your relationships are marked by only that kind of mindset, and and that's the only way that you tend to operate with people, what that is, it's, it's, it's love without truth. And if you love someone without truth, at the end of the day, it's not really loving. In fact, you're not really loving them at all. What you're actually doing is you're loving yourself because you don't want that person to go away. You don't want that person to be offended or displeased with you, and so you're too dependent on them and if you're if you're too dependent on them, then you're not really loving them. you're loving yourself through them, and ultimately you're just using them. That's love without truth but But the opposite side of that coin is exactly as dangerous because on the other hand, you know truth without love, which looks like condemning people, um, writing people off, holding people to impossible standards, and making them feel like they can never quite measure up. Uh, That what that is ultimately is it's it's truth without love, Uh, and truth without love isn't truthful, because when Christians in the name of God demonstrate truth without love toward other people, what they're actually doing is they're misrepresenting the character of God, they're misrepresenting the heart of God, and portraying God uh, as though He's not also a God of grace. And so, truth without love, at the end of the day, is a falsehood. And what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter seven is a balance between both of those things that's meant to really form the culture of of his community that we call Christians or or, or the church. So let, let me just kind of park in, in, in verse six here for for a moment. Verse six, where Jesus talks about, you know, not, not tossing pearls before pigs and all that kind of stuff. Verse six Um, has been interpreted by a lot of people throughout the years, and I was was certainly one of them until recently, until actually putting this teaching together, has been interpreted in such a way that people will say that the pearls that Jesus is talking about, that you shouldn't toss before pigs, those pearls are are basically the things of God. Things like the truth, the gospel, spiritual reality, those kinds of things, all of that. And so what this is saying then, uh, according to some people, is basically don't give people what they can't appreciate. Uh, don't speak truth to people who can't appreciate it, don't speak truth to people who are unworthy of it because they're just going to trample it underfoot and they might even kind of beat on you for trying to speak the truth to them. And that sounds fine, and I I think that's even a plausible interpretation of this verse, but there's a real problem with it when you zoom out. Uh, A a guy named Dallas Willard wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount called The Divine Conspiracy, and he was walking through what this particular verse meant. And he said that, that if Jesus is teaching here, that you should not give people uh, the truth if they can't appreciate it, then the question that raises for us is why on earth did Jesus come down here then? Because we certainly did not appreciate the truth. We certainly were not worthy of the truth. And as Calvary would go on to show, we literally tore Jesus apart for trying to offer us the truth. And so if that's what Jesus is saying, then he apparently failed to take his own advice. But according to Dallas Willard, that's not what Jesus is saying here, and I think he's right. right, Willard says that the pigs and the dogs Jesus is talking about here are not people who can't appreciate the truth. They're people who can't digest it. And the real issue here is not that you've tossed your pearls to pigs. Follow me here. It's that you've tossed pearls to pigs. In other words, just zoom out from this picture Jesus is painting for us here. If you saw a farmer in response to his hungry pigs throwing pearls at them, nobody in their right mind would say, look at those stupid pigs that can't appreciate how valuable those pearls are. What they would say is, look at that stupid farmer who actually thinks he can feed his pigs with pearls. And so what what Jesus is really speaking at here is giving people the truth in a way that that is not helpful to them. It doesn't nourish them because they can't digest it. And and Willard goes on to say that the reason those those pigs are going to turn and tear you to pieces if you keep doing this is because they're going to find out that, hey, at least you're edible. And so what what Jesus is is really speaking to here and, and, and speaking against here is delivering the truth in such a way that it's devoid of love. Delivering the truth in a way that's not helpful. Delivering the truth in in a way that you force it on people and you demand that they process it exactly the way that you did. In the Narnia Chronicles, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Horse and His Boy. And uh, in in that book, there's two characters, Shasta and Erebus. And at one point, uh, they're on this road traveling, and this lion comes out of nowhere and scratches Erebus on the back, and it draws blood, and just like that, the lion, just as quickly as it appeared, is, is gone. And later on in the story, Shasta meets Aslan the lion, who represents Jesus. And uh, he asks Aslan if he was the same lion that appeared earlier and scratched his friend Erebus. And Aslan said that he was. And so Shasta wants to know why Aslan would do something like that. And this is exactly what Aslan said back to Shasta. He said, child, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story but their own. Now, as as abstract as that idea is, Lewis actually got that idea from the end of John's gospel where there's this interaction between Peter and Jesus and Peter is asking Jesus what's going to happen to John. And and basically what he wants to know is what's John's story going to be like as he follows you? And Jesus basically tells Peter, listen, I don't tell people other people's stories I only tell them their own. Now, the reason that I bring that up is because one of the main reasons that that we're so bad at maintaining this balance Jesus calls us to maintain in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ is because we all have this natural tendency to believe that we know somebody else's story. Now, just so that we're 1,000% clear here, as Christians, we are 1,000% called to speak the truth to one another. But when we do that, and as we do that, we need to do so with extreme wisdom and extreme care, because regardless of what we might tell ourselves, we really don't have any idea what, what anybody else's story is. And matter of fact, I don't even really think we have any idea what our own story is most of the time. When we see another human being made in the image of God, in whom Jesus is being formed throughout their Christian life... The reality is we don't have any idea what experiences God has already led them through. We don't have any idea what God is up to in their life at that moment. And we don't have any idea where God plans to take them. And that does not mean that we can't speak into each other's lives. What it does mean is that we cannot prescribe another person's experience as though it needs to be identical to our own. Because if we do, according to Jesus' words here, what's going to happen is we're going to turn them into pigs. And they're going to turn on us. They're going to bite us. They're going to tear us up. But at the end of the day, that's going to be our own fault because we have failed to deliver the truth in a way that they were able to digest. And so love without truth is not really loving on the one hand, but truth without love is not really truthful on the other. And what Jesus is explaining here is that relationships inside his family need to be marked by a balance of both. Now, there's, at, there's nobody on earth that, that naturally gets this right. I mean, apart from the Holy Spirit, because of our temperaments, because of our experiences, because of who knows what, every single one of us has a tendency to, to be one or the other. Either, you know, someone who's prone to being more loving but not telling the truth when we need to, or somebody who's prone to telling the truth maybe a little bit more than we should and to do so without love. Uh, And so when you look at what Jesus is really prescribing here, what you come away with is that none of us are are naturally good at this. And and, and so really the only way for you and I to develop this balance that Jesus is calling us to demonstrate is through a relationship with the one who perfectly embodied this balance for us and to us. This is going to be the last scripture verse that that I'm going to share with you today. But I, I want to read to you, this is the beginning of John's gospel. John chapter 1 verse 14. Uh, this is so amazing to me the way that john 's Gospel account describes who Jesus was. <clears throat> Verse fourteen says, "The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, and this is the phrase that that, that has always caught my eye, full of grace and truth. That's what Jesus was. Jesus was not 50% grace and 50% truth. He was literally the full embodiment of both. And when you read the life of Jesus through the gospel accounts, what you see is that full measure of grace and that full measure of truth manifesting itself. Because time after time throughout Jesus' life, and, and this got him into considerable trouble, but time after time in Jesus' life, in perfect grace, he was, he was always Without reservation, willing to enter into the the dirtiest, most vile, most looked down upon, most hated sinners of his day. Whether that's the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, whether that's the woman who was caught in adultery, whether that's Zacchaeus the tax collector who was stealing from his own countrymen on behalf of the bad guys, the Roman Empire. Jesus, without fail, was willing to enter into their lives without reservation in his love. And yet, in his truth... Jesus, without fail, always challenged them in their sin and called them to walk away from their sin. And that is the glory of Jesus that John is describing for us in chapter 1, verse 14. That in perfect love, Jesus meets us where we are, but in perfect truth, he never leaves us that way. And as he reveals to us all the areas of our lives that need to change, one of the things that I am so thankful for, I've talked to God about this so many times, you know, just in my my, my private prayer time with him. One of the things I'm so thankful for is that in my relationship with Jesus, as he shows me all the areas of my life that need to change, he always does so at a pace that doesn't absolutely destroy me. I've always thought that if God all at once showed me every area of my life that needed to change and exactly how far I fall short from his standard, I would be completely disintegrated in discouragement. When, When Jesus walks with us in this lifestyle that we call Christianity, he always shows us the areas of our life that need to change at a pace that doesn't completely undo us. And while he does, every step of the way reminds us that there is absolutely no condemnation for us in him. And so the only way that that we're going to grow in developing this balance of both truth and love is by experiencing the one who perfectly embodied it for us. Now, this is the point in in the teaching at which, if it was any other Sunday, I think I would encourage people to get into a small group. Uh, and I'm not going to do that right now. I actually can't do that right now because I, I think it might be illegal to do that right now, but I'm glad that I can't do that because the truth is that's not what this teaching is about. This teaching is, is not about attending church more often on a Sunday morning or even attending small groups uh, more often on Wednesday nights. It, it might not be about less than that, but it's about a whole lot more than that. This teaching and the reason we look at these words of Jesus is about understanding the role that other followers of Jesus are meant to play in your and my life and making the conscious decision to commit to that group of people in order to be accountable to and for that group of people. Because you can go to church on Sunday mornings and you can go to a small group on Wednesday nights without understanding and really being moved by what Jesus is, 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 is driving at here. Uh, Another quote I wanted to share with you before our time's over this morning uh, is again from C.S. Lewis. When he wrote the book, "Mere Christianity," his heart for that book was not to get in, into arguments about specific distinctions and denominations within the belief system known as Christianity. What he wanted to do is he just wanted pr- to present general, mere Christianity. But on, the, on the, the front end of his book, in the introduction, he included a uh, basically a warning that I think, if anything, is is more needed now than it was back when it was originally written. Here's what he had to say. He said, I hope no reader will suppose that mere Christianity is here put forward as an alternative to existing churches, as if you could adopt it in preference to congregationalism or Greek orthodoxy or anything else. He said, What I'm writing is more like a hall Out of which doors open into several rooms. If I can bring anyone into that hall, I'll have done what I attempted. But it is in the rooms, not in the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. The hall is a place to wait in, not a place to live in. I think that so many Christians, and I've been asking myself to what degree this is true even of me, I think so many Christians go through life trying to live out their Christianity in what C.S. Lewis would here call the hall. But Lewis knew, Lewis knew that Christianity was not meant to be lived out that way because none of us are going to be able to grow in grace apart from committing to a real church and really making ourselves accountable to other followers of Jesus as brothers and sisters. And, and here's the deal. Whatever church we commit to, I, I just think this is an important thing for us to understand, especially now, as tense and as heated and as loaded as everything seems to be. Whatever church we commit to on this side of eternity, there's going to be things that we don't like about it. There's going to be positions they take that we don't entirely agree with. There's going to be programs they offer that we don't like or offered in a way that we don't like. And there's certainly going to be people in those churches that we don't necessarily naturally mesh with. But what Lewis would say, and all he was doing is taking his cue from Jesus. What Lewis would say is that it's only in the rooms, meaning only in real particular churches with real particular people with all of their issues, with all of their nuance with all of their particularities that there's meals and there's fires and there's tables and there's chairs. In other words, all the things that we need in order to grow. And and, and so I just, I want to leave you with this. Thinking through the climate that we're in as a culture right now and the division and the way that people are so prone to just making enemies of one another My my desire for this teaching, because I really do believe that this is something God's speaking to me in ways that I haven't quite understood before. My desire for this teaching is that whoever you are, that you would come to understand in in a newer, in a deeper, in a more sobering way, what Jesus has to say about how important your relationship with your Christian brothers and sisters are. Because if a church could get this right, if a church could do away with this, this version of Christianity that says, well, if I hear one teaching I don't like, or if I meet one person I don't like, or if, or if you know this song is a song that I don't like, then I'm going to uproot and go somewhere else. If a church could understand what Jesus is saying here and get this right, that church would be the epitome of holiness. That church would be magnetic. That church would be dynamic. That church would grab the attention of a watching world. And according to Jesus, that church would have a real opportunity to have an impact, to do something amazing in this world. And I believe that we could be that church. That's it. And that's all.